with us. We are finishing a series today on the Ten Commandments. We're on the, the last and final commandment, the Tenth Commandment, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Oh, and if you need a Bible, I'm sorry, raise your hand and one of our ushers will, will give you one. Encourage you to follow along. A couple Bibles up here. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you're also, I'm sorry, if you're new to the Bible as well, you can't find it, just look in the table of contents and you can find the uh, page number for the book of Exodus. It reads this, Exodus 20:17. you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help us to understand this last commandment. We thank you for the fact that you have given us the opportunity to go through these Ten Commandments. We thank you for this. We thank you for the Decalogue, these ten words that reveal to us your holiness, that reveal to us our need for a Savior, that reveal to us what it is that you require of us. God, speak to us this morning one last time as we look at at these ten words. It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. He owned a home, an old home, on the top of a hill. It was a magnificent home. It overlooked the entire city. Wherever you were in the city, you could look up on this hill and see this home. It was old, inherited. It was a large mansion. Stood proudly for all to see. There was a city official that fell in love with this home. He wanted it. He determined that he would buy it. One day he mustered up the courage to go and knock on the door and ask the man if he could buy his home. He was shocked as the man said, no, he's not selling. The city official decided to go a different strategy and got a realtor to do the talking for him. The realtor went and spoke with the man. Can we buy the home? The realtor came back with bad news. The home is not for sale. As it turns out, the man did inherit the home. And there are some certain situations going on, some law issues that, uh, that prevent him from being able to even sell if he wanted to. The home's not for sale. The city official went home discouraged, depressed, sad. He couldn't get beyond it. He couldn't get this home off of his mind. He wanted it so bad. When his wife came home that day, she found him in the bedroom, laying on the bed, staring at a blank wall in utter depression. What has happened to my husband? What has caused him to spiral into such despair? And then she finds out about the home that he can't have. Now, his wife was a sly politician herself. And she could get things done. And she said, you know what? I'm going to get you that home. She pulled some strings. She moved some papers. She talked to some people. She paid off a judge. She changed some some files, and she had the man 
wrongly convicted of tax fraud, all sorts of crimes. He was then arrested. He was tried. And the paid-off judge found him guilty. Lost the home. Lost his life. Lost everything. The home then went into the hands of the city. And the wife took the abandoned home and gave it as a gift to her husband. Today we come to this 10th commandment. Do not covet. What happened in this story? What commandments, you could, you, we could ask, were broken in this story? Well, the ninth commandment was clearly broken. Lies. The eighth commandment was clearly broken. Stealing. Sixth commandment was broken. Murder. But they all began really with breaking the tenth commandment. Wanting something that is not yours. Covet. It's an old word that we don't use very much anymore. That simply means to desire what is not yours. This city official coveted, and guess what? When he broke the tenth commandment, he broke all the commandments. There's something uh, that happened in this story that is, that is much more subtle and even more wicked than what is clearly apparent. The Tenth Commandment is closely related to the First Commandment. You could say the First Commandment and the Tenth Commandment serve as bookends for the entire Ten Commandments. Love God, love others. They are saying now the same thing in two different ways. They're closely related. Here's, here's what I mean. Let's, let's look at it. The first commandment says what? Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before Me. So what God can you have? The only God there is. You will have, possess, no other God before Me is the first commandment. The tenth commandment says you can only have what this God gives you. Do you see the connection? And if you want to have what this God has not given you, then you are having another God before Him. The subtle wickedness that happened in this story is that this man was unhappy with what God had given him. Another word we could use is discontent. He was discontent with what the one God had given him. And so he turned his back on that one God. And so, we are not to covet. We are not to covet what? Let's look at it. Verse 17 again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now this isn't to say that you can't look at a, a godly marriage and say, yeah, it's a good model of marriage. I, I hope to one day have a marriage like that. No, this is to say that you can't say, I want that marriage. I want that husband. I want her husband and I don't want him to have him her to have him. I want his wife and I don't want him to have his wife. You see what I'm saying? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Then he goes on. This 
kind of gets a little confusing for us today. You shall not cover your neighbor, neighbor's servants. Now, we don't live in a caste system today. Uh, we, don't, we don't all have sort of a fresh prince of Bel Air, Jeffrey, right, to covet after. Uh, we uh, don't have oxes. Like, I don't think I've ever coveted an ox. Uh, donkeys, that's just not been my struggle. Um, so is this, is this it? So we're just talking about wives here, I guess. That's, what, that's how we can apply this. Well, that word house, everybody see the word house right there? That's kind of a catch-all word. That's a word that's basically, well, let me, let me show you. Don't cover your neighbor's, neighbor's house. And then he gives a couple examples. And then look at the last line. He says, or anything that is your neighbor's. So house just simply refers to not just the physical house on top of the hill. It refers to anything and everything your neighbor has, any position he has, any, any, any uh, abilities she has. Anything that is your neighbor's that you don't have, don't want it. Don't desire it. Alright? Don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. John Calvin said this. He said, since we are to love others, we must banish all desires contrary to love. Then he goes on, he says, who can deny that all the powers of the soul should be possessed with love? Not one particle of covetousness then can enter into our love. So John Calvin is saying, look, if we are to be people of love, covetousness is a lack of love for your neighbor. And so Christians, we, the people of God, should not be people who have any particle of covetousness that has invaded our love. Is coveting a big deal today? We don't have oxes, oxen. We don't have donkeys. Is it a big deal today? Children watch 100 commercials on average a day. Children 11 and under spend $18 billion a year. Tweens spend $30 billion a year. We are, from our youth, bred to be consumers. We live in a consumeristic society. If you are an American, if you live in America, friend, you are a consumer. Alright? Just get over it. You are a, a number and someone for, for someone else to sell to. The greatest, one of the greatest proponents of poverty, I believe, is materialism. A poor family who is struggling to make ends meet, will receive thousands and thousands of dollars in a lead poisoning lawsuit and has been told by music and movies and advertisements that they must spend it on stuff. The media has taught us to blow our money. I, I, I'm angered by this as I look at our neighborhood and I've seen money come through the neighborhood and rich advertisers somewhere have duped us to think that if we just buy the, this pair of shoes that we're going to be happy. And we somehow go along with life and put up with it. It's just the way the economy works. And poverty continues. And then we think, we buy the other lie, we think, well... If we just had enough money constantly coming in, 
If I had enough money to, to, to meet my needs, uh, to, to live a comfortable life, then I wouldn't really be discontent. The reason I'm not content is because, Joel, look at all of my needs, okay? I spoke with a friend of mine who is a fund manager. He works with extremely wealthy people, multi-multi-millionaires. And as I was, as I was preparing for this, I, I wondered, and I, I asked him a question. I, I, sa- I asked him, is there at all any correlation between increased wealth and increased, uh, uh, an increased sense of being content? Like, is it, do you at all, at all, from all the, the people that you have worked with over the years, multi-millionaires, does it seem like, is there any hint that if wealth increases, you want less? You have more contentment. I want to read you his response. He says, I have found the more financial success people have, the more they are tempted to covet. Because we live in such a materialistic age, the desire to acquire more stuff seems to grow as people make financial gain. More money doesn't help this problem. More money does not mean that we're going to be more content. As a matter of fact, often what it seems like is it's, it's the reverse. Everywhere your eye can look, yep, everywhere your eye can look, there's advertisements for something. I just had to give it a shot here before I finished it. Advertisements all over the place. We're constantly told to buy and to find our happiness in stuff. Jeremiah, speaking of of Israel, when Israel was being judged by God, he said this of them. He said, they were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Jeremiah 5.8. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Sounds like the society that we live in. To To our society today comes God's Word. You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. His wife, her husband... Their kids, their traditions, their background, their resources, their degree, his position, her personality, his hairline. Just threw one in for myself there. Friends, assistants, jobs, popularity, car, boat, house, furniture, washing machine, house, weight, height, physique, or anything that is your neighbor's. That belongs to your neighbor. That God gave your neighbor. And not you. Unsatisfied. Discontent with God. This tenth commandment lies behind all of the other commandments. God says in the first commandment, have no other gods. And we want other gods. Do not make for yourself idols, yet we crave idols. Protect my name, yet we want to build our own name. Observe the Sabbath day, yet we want to use the day for sleeping in. Honor your parents, yet we want to be the authority. Do not murder, yet we want another's life. Do not commit adultery, yet we want another's wife. Do not steal, yet we want what another person has. Do not lie, yet we want to believe a false reality. This tenth commandment lies behind all of the other commandments, and this tenth commandment is 
revealing. Let me walk through a couple aspects of how it's revealing this morning. It first reveals that we have an unhappy heart. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I asked somebody once what, it, what they thought it meant to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? Their response was, well, I think it means to be a Christian. I, I, think, I think it means that I obey. I think it means that I'm, I generally do good. And they, then they actually said, it means that I follow the Ten Commandments. Now, my response was, well, if being a Christian means that you follow the Ten Commandments, then we're all doomed. And if I could go back to that conversation, what I would now say is, have you ever read the Tenth Commandment? Do not covet. Like, we can kind of go through the Ten Commandments and, and if we're just looking at external stuff, we're just looking at what we do with our hands. We could, we could kind of go through and say, eh, hey, I, I can kind of check that one off the box. I haven't murdered, right? I've never actually committed adultery. You know, you could kind of go through this, check a lot of these off the box, and then you get to the Tenth Commandment, and it's the final sledgehammer to your spiritual pride. And it says, wait a second, you've broken every one of these, you little scoundrel. Martin Luther actually said, the Tenth Commandment is not for scoundrels. It's not for the rascals of the world. The Tenth Commandment is for good people. It comes to us who think we're good. It comes to religious people. It comes to those who are in church every Sunday. It comes to those who are generous with their money. It comes to those who serve. And it blows us away. I love uh, what's happening in Romans 7. Because Paul actually, which I think is really interesting, he highlights when he's talking about sin, and he's talking about the law and how the law exposed sin. You know what commandment he highlights in Romans 7? The 10th commandment. Do not covet. Why? Because Paul was a religious man. Paul was a good man. And like many religious people, many good people, Paul went around thought, uh, thinking that he was doing pretty good. He saw the law of God as merely external. He saw the law of God as just simply the outward things that he has done or hasn't done. But when God finally, through the grace of Jesus Christ, opened his eyes to the reality of the law, do you know which commandment struck him? It's what he had been doing all along as a religious man, puffed up and coveted. Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it, had been for the, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So this is the first use of the law which we talked about 11 weeks ago. The Ten Commandments are given to us first so that we might know that we are sinners. For I would not have known what it is, here he highlights it, I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now what he's saying is this, prior to having my eyes open, I was dead to sin. I was dead, dead to the reality of sin, and I thought I was alive. And he's going to go on with that. 
<coughs> I thought I was good to go. And then the law of God comes to me. And I hear, do not covet. Now try to stop coveting. Right? You don't think you struggle with sin. Okay, try to stop coveting this morning. No more coveting allowed for you. And see how you do. This is what Paul's saying. The more I saw, the more I looked into the face of the holiness of God, the more I saw the law of God in this 10th commandment, you shall not covet, the more coveting I saw in my life. It produced all kinds of covetousness. First Samuel six sixteen verse seven says that God or man looks on the outward external actions. Yet God looks on the heart. You see, this commandment reveals something about God. Something that if we really think about it is quite horrifying. God doesn't look on the external. Look, look at all these things I've done. Look at what I've done. God looks past all of that. And He looks on the heart. You say, I haven't murdered. And God looks at your brain and your mind. And He sees your thoughts. He sees your intentions. He sees your heart. God is omniscient. He knows all. He knows your intentions more than you know your intentions. He knows your secret thoughts that you don't even admit to yourself. And what we find is that our heart is exposed with this tension. Our heart and our mind is, 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 is opened and, and revealed now, I say it reveals an unhappy heart, though. I don't just say heart, but it reveals an un unhappy heart because at the root of coveting is unhappiness. You have an unhappy heart when you're coveting. It's a sense of dissatisfaction with what God has given you. Now, the story I started off with about the man with the house on the top of a hill, that wasn't a story that I took from the Baltimore Sun. That's a story that comes straight out of 1 Samuel chapter 12 that I just kind of turned and retold in a different way, about a man, a king named Ahab, who is the city official, who looks at a vineyard owned by a man named Naboth, and he wants it, and he can't have it. There's an inheritance problem there. He can't have what he wants, and his wife gets it for him. But what, where, where I really want to drill in and root in on this is this, this moment when when Ahab is staring at a blank wall. His wife comes home. She, he's not in the living room. He's not, where in the world is my husband? He, she finds him in the bedroom, laying on the bed, staring at a wall. Depressed. Despair. Sad. Unhappy. Why? Because he can't have what he wants. And we look at that and we say, what a wimp! <laughs> like, what a, what a unhappy man. Like, 
grow up. Yet we are the same way, aren't we? We don't get what we want. We stomp our feet. We sulk. We have a pity party. An unhappy heart that's not satisfied with what God has given us. Pastors fight this as well. Looking at another congregation. Better people. More people. Nicer people. Bigger platform. And pastors call this, I want to I just want to make a bigger impact. But the reality is, is I just want a ministry that God hasn't given me and has given to someone else. We do this all the time. Dissatisfaction in the church, in the home. And we couch it under nice terms. We, we, we clean it up a bit. But it's really just coveting. God hasn't given that to you. Where are you discontent in your life? Where are you discontent with what God has given you? Why is your heart unhappy? I want to encourage you. This week, get together with somebody from the church, and I I want you to share that. Where are you discontent in your life? Maybe before you leave today, meet with somebody and, and, and share briefly. Where are you not happy with God, with what God has given you or has not given you? Secondly, it reveals an unhappy idolatry. An unhappy idolatry. Some of you know that when I was growing up, I was a big fan of basketball. Loved basketball. And I remember as a kid, my, my dream was to be a high school star athlete, uh, to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, to... Uh, to be have, have plenty of accolade, fanfare, to have uh, opportunities to speak with NBA coaches, you know, straight to the league out of out of high school. That's what I thought would happen, right? And then I get to high school and realize I stopped growing, and that's about it, right? After high school, I uh, came home from college, and my my dad said, "Hey, you want to go to a a high school boys basketball game at the University of Akron?" And I said, sure. The reason we were going to go is because the number one team in the nation, St. Vincent St. Mary, was playing, and they had a star on their team, a 16-year-old named LeBron James. So we went to the game, and there is big old 16-year-old LeBron James that looks like he could already be playing in the NBA, right? Tearing up these little guys. I mean, he's playing against the best athletes in the nation, and he makes them look like a bunch of middle schoolers. The fanfare. It's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, junior in high school. Talking with NBA coaches, getting a Hummer for his mom. Now, I remember leaving that game, and it hit me. He's living my life. <laughs> He's, he's living the life that I was supposed to live. At least the life that I had dreamed about, right? I had created a life in my head at one time, and I thought that's where happiness is, and LeBron James is living it. I remember walking out, out of the arena, and I told my dad, I'm like, that's, that's my life. Like, that's what I was supposed to do when I was 12 and thought I was amazing. Now what is that? Well, that's, that's coveting. 
I'm unhappy with my life. I'm unhappy with the fact that God did not make me 6'9 and 280 pounds, right? I'm coveting what God had given another. What is it? I want to show you exactly what that is. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. There are a couple big sins that we are called to put to death. And at the end of the list, he says, put to death, let me give you two, evil desire and covetousness. And then he goes on with this tag, he says, which is idolatry? Evil desires and covetousness is idolatry. Now let's ask this question, why is, is covetousness idolatry? You, you think to yourself, I'm not building an idol. I don't worship an Asherah pole. How are you going to call me an idol worshiper if I just simply want what I don't have? Here is why it's idolatry. It's because God is sovereign. This is another aspect of God's character that is revealed here in the Tenth Commandment, that God is a sovereign God. Remember the First Commandment. Have no other gods before you. You can't have... You can't possess any other gods than the one true God. And this God has given you all that you have and so don't want to have anything that this God has not given you. And when you want to have what He has not given you, then you are having another God. Do you see how that works? It's idolatry. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Friends, this goes way back. What was it that turned our parents, Adam and Eve, against God? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see the same word. It says, Eve looked at the fruit and she, and it's the word coveted, translated desire. She wanted it. God said, you cannot have this fruit. And she said, I want what I can't have. And as she took it, we know that she committed. And Adam with her, they together committed the sin of idolatry. The next time that word is used is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Do not covet. Is the fruit better than God? I mean, for a split second, our parents believed that the fruit would be more satisfying than God. Consider this. Consider the foolery of it. God said you can have anything, just not this fruit. I'm desiring that. I'm coveting it. I want what I can't have. And for this moment, I believe that this fruit is better than the glory of God. Than the glory of God in Christ. Than all that is ours in Him. I want this fruit. And God says, don't covet. It's God's sheer kindness to us that this command would come. Because God doesn't want us to want anything more than we want Him. He doesn't want us to desire more anything more than what we 
than, 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 uh, than how we desire Him. Your idols can't speak. Your idols can't forgive. Your idols can't give life. They leave you only unhappy. The call then to turn away from wanting, the call to turn away from coveting, is God's grace to us as God simply says, I want to be enough for you. And I am enough for you. And I will satisfy and your idols will not. You see, one reason as a church that we're hesitant to share our burdens with each other is because some of our burdens are actually idols. And we know that as soon as we share this idol, we are going to have to do something about it and give it up. And we don't want to do that. And so we hide. We keep it. We protect it. You see, friends, this reveals for us our heart, idolatry, and it reveals our need for redemption. Here in Romans chapter 7, we see it. Have you ever known somebody who knows that there's something wrong with their health, but they refuse to go to the doctor? Like there is a tumor growing out of their belly, like this big, and they're, they're, they're saying, ah, I just put on some pounds. <laughs> I've just got to lay off a little bit, a little belly fat. No, that's a tumor, friend. You need to get that checked out. And you know that's a tumor, right? Just lie to ourselves. We don't want to go. We don't want to deal with it. This is how we, this is how we treat our sin. We got a tumor coming out of our spiritual bellies. And we don't even want to look, we don't want to open up the law of God. We don't want to be confronted with it because we don't want to be confronted with our sin because if we're confronted with our sin, we have to deal with it. But friends, it's, it's God's great. It's, it's God, God is for you here. He's not against you. All right. He wants you uh, to, to see this. He wants you to be, to, to be uncovered, to be revealed so that you might know that there is healing, so that you might know that there is redemption, so that you might know that there is forgiveness. Psalm chapter 4, verse 7. I love this, this line when, as this poor, broke psalmist who's running for his life says this. He says, you have given me more joy than they have when their grain and wine abounds. Now, how is it possible for a poor youth who's running for his life to look to God and say, you have given me more joy than they have when their Lamborghinis are filled with gas, right? How is it possible? It's only possible because this young person has experienced the reality of God's kindness. This young person has realized that God has exposed the cancer and cut out the cancer and given him healing. He has found a Savior in Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 65, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. How can we change? What might it look like to change? Well, I'll tell you, the law won't help you do it. The law won't change you. Look at verse 8 in Psalm Psalm chapter 7. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Lies dead. Meaning meaning I wasn't aware it was there. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and though it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which, which is good then bring death? By no means. It was sin that, producing, that, that produced death in me. The law exposes the sin in us. It exposes our need for a Savior. We turn to Christ and we find forgiveness. The law, just simply following the law, does not save. Discovering our need for a Redeemer is our first step in salvation. And turning to Christ and finding Christ to be our Redeemer is salvation. Does God really forgive all of our sins? Does He really forgive all of them? All of the hidden heart sins. When iniquities prevail against me, You atone for our transgressions. Friends, Christ is enough. He is enough for you. Jesus lived a life for you. He died on the cross for you. He took the, the judgment of God for your coveting on Himself. And Jesus gave you new life. He rose from the dead and gave you the promise that you are forgiven now and one day will be raised to new life again with Him. Let me ask you this question. Is that not enough for you? Is Christ not enough? Is the glory of God in Christ not enough? Or does the glory of God in Christ when we encounter the, the experience of God's love, does it diminish the covenanting in our hearts? Does our desire for stuff fade as we see Him? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Does salvation and finding your identity in Christ make coveting fade to black? Is the promise of the wealth of heaven one day which will be given to you poured out on your head not enough to satisfy? See, family, our answer for coveting is to not get rid of desire. It's to not just simply get rid of our desires. Now the answer for coveting is to exchange bad desire for good desire. To replace wrong desire for right desire. To be so overwhelmed with the fact that the God of this world loves you. To be so overwhelmed with the reality that His love was demonstrated for you through His Son dying on the cross in your place. This, this then changes your desires. This captures your imaginations. Your feelings are changed. Your intentions are changed. And you don't need to have your neighbor's wife. You don't need to have your neighbor's husband or his servants or his ox or his donkey if that's your thing. You have one eternal 
triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has loved you and sought you and found you and redeemed you and opened your eyes and you have experienced Him. This experience with God destroys coveting in your heart. The church, we are a people who are redeemed. The redeemed people of God driven into community with each other out of love for God. Forgiven. But every sin that comes to light is forgiven. Living then lives to the glory of God. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make an image in the form of anything. Do not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Jesus said this. He said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because this is the line of love. This is what it looks like to love. This is what it means to love God. And this is what it means to love each other. This is what it means for lawbreakers, rebels against God like us who are saved by God's grace, not according to our own works, but according to His mercy. This is what it looks like for us to love. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared before Him that we might walk in them. To be overwhelmed by His love for us to be overwhelmed by the Gospel, to be changed by Jesus, to be forgiven. And then to follow Him in obedience, to love. To love God and to love each other. This is our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to go through these Ten Commandments. We ask that as we close, that You help us to run to Christ, our only hope, that we would never be left in our sin and in our guilt, but we would, we would find Christ every time the law exposes cancer in us, that we would find Christ to be our sufficient Savior. That You would remind us what it is that You require of us so that we might walk in holiness and in obedience to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.